All right, let's look now at our last two manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness and self-control. Um, and let, let's go to Romans chapter 7, as we have been looking at the fruit of the Spirit, uh, we're down to the last two, and they really do relate to one another. Um, gentleness and self-control. Uh, we are to, um, to be about gentleness and self-control in our lives as Christians. And yet, that's not easy, as we see from our own lives, but also from the honesty of Scripture. So let's look at Romans chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. And there's the problem right there. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And what he's saying is, that's what I want to do. I want to be obedient to God's law. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need you to come by your Spirit and to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord Jesus, I need you to have the freedom to preach what is true and right and good. Give me a mind full of Jesus as I preach this morning. And God, help us to hear from Him and not me. Lord God, we pray that you might... Allow us the gift of being a church that walks in the Spirit and not in the flesh, that walks in repentance and faith, that sees the humility of gentleness and the control of the Spirit manifesting uh, itself throughout our lives, that we might be a benefit to somebody else and we might be a benefit to this world. Oh God, I pray that you would do some work in the next few minutes. Prepare us to come to these tables that we might truly eat and drink by faith this morning as broken sinners, hungry and needy and desperately desiring Christ and all He is. And so come and do that for us now. Correct, rebuke, exhort, convert. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I met recently with a businessman who told me about a business trip that he took and uh, he was he was on the road and uh, he went to check in the hotel and, and he was getting ready to go to bed. It was late. It was about eleven o'clock at night. And just as he uh, his head hit the pillow, he heard 
uh, loud voices that sounded like children up in the room above him, jumping on the bed and jumping off the bed and onto the floor. And that went on and on and on and on until finally he couldn't take it any longer. He got out of bed. He walked up to the room. He knocked on the door. The mom opened the door and he said, ma'am, look, I've got to be at a business meeting in the morning. Would you please tell your children to, to just kind of calm down so I can get some sleep? Oh, yeah, I understand. I understand. He goes back, gets back in bed, puts his head on the pillow, and it's almost like they turned it up a notch. I mean, they're jumping harder. They're jumping more often. It just keeps going. He calls the front desk. He does everything he knows to do. He's contemplating, well, do I go to the hotel across the street? By now, it's like 2 in the morning. He said, if I do that, then I'm going to be awake, and I'm not... You know how it is. And we know what was going on in that room. It's not that those children, maybe the mom, but not the children were being malicious. The children were just being children. I mean, when children are together, especially in a room like that, in a hotel room, what else can they do? But jump on the bed and jump off the bed and onto the floor. I mean, they're having fun. They're focused on their community, and they're not thinking about their neighbors at all. They're getting joy and love and fun out of each other, and they're oblivious to the world around them. And dear friends, I see that in my own life. <laughs> I see that in the church today. We, we like to find relationships that feed us. We like to be in these communities and, and in a church that makes us feel good about us and, and, and builds us up, and then we go and, and we kind of forget the world around us. And what Paul is telling us through uh, this whole series on the fruit of the Spirit is that is not Christianity. But what the Spirit is at work doing constantly is to make us some good for God and somebody else. That does He care about church community? Absolutely. But does He just redeem us that we might have a holy meeting and forget the world? No. That's what he's getting at at 1 Corinthians 13. Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, where do we do all these things? Where do we speak in tongues and prophesy and have faith and give ourselves over and give our money away? We do it in the church. And so what Paul is saying, even in these verses, is, is that God did not redeem us just to, to show off to our fellow believers. He didn't redeem us so we could benefit the church community only. But He redeemed us that we might be of some good to those outside of the church. That's why Peter in 1 Peter 2.12 said, Live such good lives, where? Among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits. In other words, they become the object of your good deeds, so that your life and your goodness and your overflowing love for them becomes the apologetic that wins them over. They can't argue. They, their, their flesh wants to argue against you, but then they look at you and they say, now wait a minute, maybe there's something to this. That's why in Galatians 5, in the, in the very chapter that we've been looking at, Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you, you free, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for sin, but go love somebody. Do some good for somebody. 
And he even says this, for the entire law, Galatians 5.14, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. So the whole work of the Spirit is to take us out of what and who we are as self-centered people and make us some good to God and others as we lay our lives down for others. See, this really gets at the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says this. Religion says, do this and don't do this and you're good. You can manage religion, and that's what we all want. We want something we can manage so we can get on with our real lives. You know, uh, do this, don't do this. You can do this and not do this and not need Jesus. You know, you can remain in control of your life and just reprioritize a little bit. A little charity here, a little church attendance there. Just enough to convince yourself that you're good enough and God's good with you. And you can go on. But you can't do that in Christianity. Because Christianity is not about ultimately doing and not doing. It's about becoming. What Jesus wants is to come in and transform us. He's dealing with the ultimate loyalties of our hearts who am I serving today? Who am I doing what I'm doing for, for today? You see, that's what Christianity is. Jesus is on His throne and He's saying, serve me, bend your knee to me by abiding in me and walking with me and being in me. That's Christianity. See, the end goal of Christianity is this, love. Love of God and love of neighbor. That's why, as we come to the end of the manifestations of the one fruit of the Spirit, we have gentleness and self-control. Because I'm convinced, especially in the West, that's where we are, if you look from the world's perspective, uh, especially in not just the West, but middle, upper class maybe, um, and especially middle, upper class white, we mask self-control with discipline. And not only that, but we put self-control higher than any other of the manifestations of the fruit. And we think, well, if we are disciplined, high, 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 whatever personality kind of person that is, it's always kind of agenda-driven and, and disciplined and able to set a goal and reach it, that that is godliness. And what we need to see this morning, if you combine self-control with gentleness, which is humility, that most people who think they're self-controlled are just basically lovers of self. Because they're harsh in their plight to the top. They're harsh with other people as they're moving along and, 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 and trying to accomplish their goals. They're not humble. They're not gentle. But boy, do they get a lot done. And boy, is that me. So what is self-control then? If we try to replace all the other manifestations of the Spirit with this one um, manifestation of self-control, what is it? That's what I want to really focus on right now. Self-control, first of all, is not something you do for yourself, but you're doing it for God. Self-control is not something you do for yourself, but you're doing for God. Let's try to flesh this out. St. Jude Marathon. 
Anybody in here running the Saint? Anybody in here registered for the Saint Jude Marathon or how? Here we go. We got some hands coming up. All right. What that means is these people are getting up early in the morning right now and they're putting in training runs. They have a regiment. They have a calendar. And like every Saturday and Sunday, they're doing their long runs. So they're probably up to, I don't know, eight, ten miles on Saturday. During the week, they're doing their four, five, six-mile run, speed training, hill work, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Saturday, the next Saturday, they'll bump it up a mile. I mean, from now until the first weekend of December, they are training for a marathon. Well, they'll be one of about 18,500 people running a marathon, uh, December, whatever it is, 7th or first Sunday in December. And if, if I was thinking about that uh, this week. If, if, you know, if you're running that marathon, how many winners can you have? One. So 18,499 people are not going to win the, the, the Memphis St. Jude Marathon. Only one person is going to win. So why in the world are all these people running? Motivation. Let's look at that. If you take the 18,500 people that are going to be running and you say, I don't know, 12, let's say 15,000 are Christians. It doesn't matter. But just for sake of illustration, it does matter ultimately. But uh, for this illustration, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, the math doesn't matter. Um, you know, let's say 15,000 are believers in Christ. Now, for us, our motivation in everything we do is to be the glory of God. We were made for God and we were made to glorify Him whether we eat or drink or run a marathon. It doesn't matter what we're doing. He is to be glorified in all that we're doing. But out of those 15,000 professing Christians, how many of them do you think are actually running for the glory of God? And if you take their motivation, I'm not saying you can't, um, but you take their motivation versus those that don't claim to be Christians, what's the difference? They're all getting up at the same time. They're all putting in the same mileage. They're all wearing the same shoes and the same clothes and going the same distance. So what, what's the difference between the self-control of a believer and the self-control of an unbeliever? Well, I think that we can see this when we look at the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, it's really the parable of two sons, older brother, younger brother. The older brother is the self-controlled, disciplined one. He stays at home and he gets the job done. He wakes up early. He's never late. He stays late. He's always, you know, he's training for a marathon on Saturday. He's, you know, he's always faithful. He's always disciplined. He's always doing what he is expected to do, if not more. But then you got the younger brother. The younger brother gets sick of even going to work late, and which he's done all his life. And so he comes to the dad and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I can't wait, any, wait for you to die. And the dad says, okay, there you go. He takes it and he goes and he squanders it in wild living. Meanwhile, he's out with prostitutes, throwing the party, living the life. Meanwhile, the older brother's at home slaving away, getting it done, waking up early, working, working, working. All right? Well, the younger brother comes home. The father is so excited, he throws him a party and starts blessing him with a robe, sandals, a signet ring, the fattened calf, the band, the party, everything. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Disciplined, Self-Controlled, Godly Man loses it. And listen, this is what he said. 
He said, look to his dad. All these years I've been slaving for you. Hmm. And never disobeyed your orders. In other words, I am so disciplined. I've been so self-controlled. I never showed up late. You asked me to do something. I do it. I don't question it. All these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. Years of self-discipline are blown out the window. Why? Do you see it? Because the older brother was not serving the father. He was serving the, the, himself to get the father's stuff. He was manipulating the father so that he could be wealthy. And dear friends, that's what we do. I tell you, God, I, I use the St. Jude Marathon because I've trained for four marathons and I've finished two. And even telling you that gets at something in me. I hate to tell you that I tried to do something and couldn't do it because I take a lot of pride in being able to do things. But I want you to know that the very first marathon that I, I ran, the first one that I trained for, I, got, I was injured a year, I mean a month before and couldn't run it. Then I trained for one, and for a whole host of reasons, blew it, ran about 50 minutes slower than, than I wanted to do it. Um, and because of that, I was humiliated, I was embarrassed. When people asked how the marathon go, I just kind of hung my head, oh, I did all right, I finished. Well, what was your time? Oh, that didn't really matter. I mean, what time? Well, you know, because I told everybody, I'm going to break four, I'm going to break four hours, I'm going to run a 350, my training's incredible, and man, I blew it. It was horrible. A couple of years ago, I ran another one. Same deal. I got injured about a month before. And I decided, you know, I'm going to run, but I'm going to stop if I'm just dying. And I stopped at about mile 22. And it, the radical thing in that was that God dealt with my motivation over the years to the point that I could actually say, okay, if I stop, my whole identity is not wrapped up in it. Now, that may seem absolutely stupid to you if you don't run. You may think, man, you're like so immature. I mean, it's just a race. Come on. Well, what is it for you? <laughs> because we all look for something to put our identity in. And if it's something other than Jesus, it's going to let us down if we fail. And it's going to prop us up for a time if we succeed. And you see, that's motivation. Real self-control is serving Christ and coming under His control. Not something else. You see, I can be very disciplined in a race. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 9. He actually uses a race. Paul does. So, hey, it's not just me. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, Do you know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, how many FCA, how many, you know, locker room, how many, you know, run and get the prize? Well, guess what? Let's see what the prize is. It's not the victory. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Amen. They do it to get a crown that will not last. What? But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, what's the prize? Let's keep reading. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, why are you doing all this, Paul? I do all this for the sake of my identity, to make me feel good at the end of the day for how many people believe the gospel after I preach. No, I did all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. Do you see it? Paul ran the race and he did it. For Jesus, Jesus was his prize. And when Jesus is our prize, we will never be disappointed because you don't have to run for Jesus. He has already run the race for you. That's what grace is. Grace says the Christian life or or, or getting right with God is a marathon that you could never finish. It doesn't matter how good you are, how strong you are, how much you train. You can't do it. And so what Jesus did is he came and he ran it for you. And you slug were just on the sideline taking credit for it. And yet he says, here you go. It's yours. He treats you as if you have already run the race. That is what grace is. And so what self-control is, is coming under Christ and saying, make me something different. There's a battle raging in our hearts, and it's for control. Self-control. The Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 is agratia. And grat means power or lordship. Ego means self. And so it's lordship over self. And yet, what we're about to see specifically, and what Paul lays out in Romans 7, is nobody in here has power over themselves. The very thing I want to do, I find that I don't do. But I end up doing the very thing I don't want to do. Isn't that, isn't that the Christian life? And so, it's not about us becoming more in control of us. It's about us losing control and coming under the control of Christ. Self-control is really God control. It's God controlling ourselves. Well, that's what self-control is. It's not about us. It's about God. But secondly... It's a battle. The flesh fights against self-control with a vengeance. The big topic in the news right now is America going to bomb Syria. Now, why in the world are we thinking about bombing Syria? We're thinking about bombing Syria uh, because some crazy person uh, sent a chemical weapon into Syria and uh, with nerve gas and killed up to 1,500 people. Now, I'm not going to tell you where I stand on that issue. Everybody's kind of waiting. What what did Richard think about that? Well, you can ask me privately what I think about that. Um, But but here's, here's the deal. The reason we're even thinking about bombing Syria is because 
to, to let someone loose like that is almost unthinkable. To, to think that somebody has the power to kill that many people and to do it with a chemical uh, a weapon or, or, is just unthinkable. Well, what Paul wants us to know in Romans 7 is that we have an enemy like that inside every one of us. And he is after us and he will stop at nothing. He is ruthless and he wants to take you down. And if he had a chemical weapon you know, available to him, he would use it on you. He wants to kill you. He wants you to die and to die painfully. And this enemy is called the flesh. Listen to what Paul says in, in um, 7.25. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. There is a battle raging in us, people. And you've heard me say it before. I've had so many people come to me and feel like they're not Christians because they are battling with sin. I want you to know, if you're battling with sin, it's because you're a believer. If you're not battling with sin, you have no reason to think that you're a believer today. Because the believer is ushered into a war in which the flesh fights against the Spirit. Listen to Ephesians 2.3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Listen to that. Cravings of the flesh. Your flesh, your sinful nature has cravings, not subtle little suggestions. Let me give you the difference between a craving and a suggestion. A, cra- a, a suggestion is this. I'm driving down Union. I see backyard burger, just hypothetically. It says on the sign, seasoned fries are back. And I look at that sign and I say, oh, I haven't graced them with my business lately. And I want to be a good citizen and I want to, you know, just give them some business. I like Backyard Burger and some others have closed and I'm just going to do them a service. No, that's a suggestion. Here's a craving. If I don't have a blackjack burger with seasoned fries in the next three minutes, somebody's going to die. That's your flesh. It comes in, it doesn't just kind of suggest, it says, you do this or you will die. You see, it doesn't suggest to us, oh man, look at that nice girl. Look at that nice outfit, you know. She would probably be nice to sit down and have coffee with and get to know her and know her personality. And No, the flesh is a craving that says, if you can't have her in bed, then you are nothing and life isn't worth living. You know, the flesh doesn't say, you know, it'd be nice to have a good job. It'd be nice to have a good education and go to this fine university. I mean, it would be nice, but if not, that's okay. I mean, I can read some books. I can study, and it really doesn't matter what I make. No. I mean, the flesh says, if you don't make a perfect score on the ACT or SAT, then you are nothing. If you don't get into that university, then you are trash. If you don't get the highest paid job, then, then why, even, why is life worth living? I mean, look at you. Look at your friends. Look at what they're making. The, the, the flesh craves it. You're single. The flesh doesn't come along and say, oh, it's okay. I mean, you've got a good community group. It comes in and says, if you find the right guy, you, Christian or not, you better ditch him. You better forget your community group, forget your church, because this is your one opportunity. You see, that's what the, the flesh does. 
And that's the battle that's raging. And that's why self-control is so hard. Because there's this battle going on inside of us. The flesh creates compulsive behavior. Do you hear me? Compulsive behavior. It's the root of religion. It says, okay, I will keep myself pure until I'm married. And then you get married and your, your husband or your wife is a jerk. And you say, God, this isn't what I signed up for. See, it shows that you're compulsive. You, you were compulsive. You, you were saying, I've got to have righteous standing before God and I'm going to get it by keeping myself pure. read an update from a good friend who hit the mission field. She got married. And a week, week and a half later, went to the mission field, sent out a support letter. I read it this morning. And they got to the mission field, and the husband's been sick with two or three different things. They're having a hard time with the language, the loneliness, and the reality of what they've committed to for the next two years is sinking in. Motivation. You see, we're always dealing with it. It's always there. But here's the good news. The flesh is not the only one desiring in us, but the spirit is desiring too. And here's the good news. 1 John 4, 4 tells us the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Paul said in Philippians, I'm convinced that, that he who began a good work in you will see it on to completion. You see, there's, there's a God who is living inside of you. Paul says in Romans 8 that, that the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. Do you get that? So don't just think that you have no power over sin. You have the very presence of the divine God of the universe. The Holy One of, of Israel is living inside of you, manifested in the person of the Holy Spirit. And He is warring too. And that's why Paul says, get in step with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Understand that you're not alone. The Spirit is there to fight with and for you and sometimes even against you. This series has opened my heart in some radical ways. And one way that it's opened my heart is it's, it's shown me how much, um, I guess, stock I put in the law of God over the fruit of the Spirit. Now, go with me here. How many commandments, or how, many, yeah, how many commandments did God give on Mount Sinai? Ten, there you go. All right, ten commandments. That wasn't a trick question. It's always scary to answer, you know, uh, publicly. But, all right, Ten Commandments. How many fruits of the Spirit are there? We want to say nine. I'm going to say ten. And here's why. The very first one is love. And this is Richard. This is theology according to Richard. I'm sorry. I hadn't read this in anybody else. And don't put a lot, you know. But here's where, this is what it, the, the impact has had in my life. Because I've, I realize that I've held up the wrong law in a sense. Go with me here. The, the, the lawyer came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And he gave him not one but two. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. The second is like unto it. So love is really two commandments. Love God, love neighbor. So the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in love God, love neighbor. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. They're ten. And in a sense, this is what we are to hold up. 
Do you understand if you want to know how you're doing with Jesus, you look at the cross and you say, he loves me through himself. But how am I growing? How, how am, am I really growing in Christ? What you need to hold up is the fruit of the Spirit and say, am I loving God more and more every day? Am I loving my neighbor more and more every day? Am I manifesting joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? And let me just tell you this. If you are exhibiting those things, you are obeying the Ten Commandments. You see, if you're exhibiting those things, you're not sleeping with your neighbor's wife. Plain and simple. If you're exhibiting the love of God, then you're having no other gods before Him. If, if you're exhibiting patience, then you're exhibiting love and, and you're not getting angry with someone and killing them. I mean, you can just go down the list. And so how are you doing in your growth as a Christian this morning? You see, the whole thrust of what the Spirit is doing is He is seeking to make you a loving person, a joy-filled person, in spite of your circumstances. A peaceful person, in spite of who's in your face or what circumstances in your face. A patient person, in spite of who you live with or don't live with. Do you see it? The Holy Spirit comes in and He makes us something different. And if you look at it that way, then dear friends, you have only one place to go, and that is to understand that you are failing miserably. Because I thought I was doing good all this time, running marathons, and, I, and God said, that has nothing to do with self-control. The way you have self-control is to come so under the rule and control of Jesus that His fruit is being just poured through you. You can discipline yourself to study. You can discipline yourself to do anything that you want to do, and that is not Christian self-control unless the, the other manifestations of the fruit are, are accompanying it. So how do you get self-control? You get self-control from the Spirit. I'm intrigued by Jesus' encounter with the demoniac. I mean, the demoniac was like this crazy lunatic dude who lived on this island, the shore. He had so many demons in him, he just he didn't even have clothes on. He was taking stones and cutting himself and anybody that would come near him. Just crazy dude. And Jesus comes along, casts the demons out into the herd of pigs. Pigs go off the, you know, the, the ledge, fall in the water and die. The farmers lost all their income. We don't know what happened with them and... That they became followers of Jesus uh, in, in that whole story. But anyway, we, we get to the end, and this is what we read. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Look at that. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. How do you get self-control? The demon-possessed man knew. He knew that it wasn't just getting more disciplined. He knew that something happened 
And everything about what happened to him had to do with the person of Jesus Christ. He knew that Jesus was the only one who could get credit for getting the spirit inside of him, the spirit of Christ inside of him, and driving away all those evil spirits. Because one minute he's naked, slashing himself with rocks and killing anybody that would come near him, and the next minute he's clothed in his right mind, wanting to be a missionary for Jesus and going to preach the mercy and grace of the gospel of Jesus. That's what we all need. We need to come under the powerful influence of Christ and His Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Two ways. The first is we've got to go to the source. It is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of you. You can't, the first thing, the first principle to understand how to produce the fruit of the Spirit and how to be a, a different person is to acknowledge and take ownership that you can't change yourself. You can't. It's just that desperate. So you must go to Christ and you must submit your heart to Him and you must say, take rule of me. Rule me. It's what we all need. Ephesians 5.16 says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Do you want to know how to be faithful to your bride or your husband? Walk with them. I've never seen, and maybe this has happened, but I think the odds are pretty low that you're going to have an affair when you're walking with your spouse. Literally. When you are walking with your spouse, you're not having an affair with somebody else. Because why? Your spouse catches you looking at somebody else? There you go. (laughs) But even more than that, You're reminded of all your spouse is when you're walking by them. Are you walking by the Spirit of Christ? Is He sweet to you? Or is He distant to you? If He's distant to you, you've not been walking by Him. You're not living in fellowship with Him. You're you're going through the motions and you need to cry out to God and say, convince me that you are life itself. And then secondly, meditate on His Word and Gospel. Meditate on His Word and Gospel. John Owen said this. He said, as pastors, we're spending all of our time doing one of two things. We spend all our time either trying to convince people who are under the dominion of sin that think they're not, that they are, or we're trying to convince people who are not under the dominion of sin who think they still are that they're not. How true is that? We're either trying to convince others and we're trying to convince ourselves that we are under God's law or we are under God's grace. And I love what Ephesians says. It says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Did you know that the flesh has a thought about everything? And therefore, you need to fill your mind and your heart with different thoughts. That's exactly what Jesus did in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Did you ever wonder why they they describe it like that? 40 days and 40 nights. Well, of course, if it was 40 days, it's going to be 40 nights. No. The battle was going on not just during the day, but also at night. It was 40 days and 40 nights of battling. And what was the battle? The, the, The devil was coming to Jesus and he was tempting him. 
We see it in Matthew 4. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Dear friends, are you feasting on the Word of God and believing it so that when the flesh begins to talk to you, you can begin to talk to it according to God's Word? You say, that just sounds so churchy and so weird. I'm reading a book by Paul Tripp called The Dangerous Calling. And in that book, Paul Tripp talks about uh, all these pastors. He's, he's counseled hundreds of pastors. And he said, I've seen a common theme. These pastors don't preach the gospel that they preach to others to themselves. They prepare sermons that they preach to other people, but they don't believe it. Do you understand that the message of the gospel is first and foremost to you? You can't give it away until you've received it. None of us can. And so as your flesh and as the evil one is coming to you throughout the week and throughout the day and filling your mind with all these thoughts and all these lies, are you countering it with the truth of God? Your greatest defense is, is the Word of God because He has spoken. So as all these lies come to you, to go to the Word of God and say, No, I, my hope is not in another man or in another woman. My hope is not in this or that. My hope is in Christ. I am not alone, even though I feel alone and abandoned. But my God said He will never leave me nor forsake me. So it must be my flesh talking if I feel this way. No, it, it, just because I don't have money to buy that new car doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. He's told me to trust Him and He will provide for all of my needs in time. Do you see every little thought? That's where your flesh is coming at you. That's where you have to take the Word of God and say no. And so every minute of every day, you've got to be analyzing your thoughts and saying, am I really under the rule of Christ? Am I really listening to Him and all that He has for me? Because He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When your flesh says, come to Jesus, and you're going to have second-rate living. But dear friends, may we listen to Jesus as we come to the table today. May we say, thank you that we can taste and know that you are good. Take me under your rule. Would you do it now? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the table set before us. And we pray, O oh God, that you would draw us to these tables, that we might eat and drink to your glory that we might rest in You and abide in You, Lord Jesus, that we might experience You uh, even through this sacrament. We thank You so much, Lord Jesus, for all that You are for us, all that You are and what You've done to us. And God, we just pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit in ways where the world might know that You are the kind of God that You say You are. By the community that, that we have right here at Downtown Church, and by the fruit that is being manifested in our lives throughout each day. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.